I love it when a podcast conversation actually makes me a better coach. And that's what happened today in this conversation with Dr. Glenn Livingston, who's just written a new book called Defeat Your Cravings. We talk about a lot of stuff, but the key element that I want you to listen to and listen for is this idea of the extinction curve for habits, because understanding it and the way he explained it, it will help me, has already helped me help clients when the cravings that they thought they had defeated come roaring back totally unexpectedly. So I want you to listen for that. But in the meantime, I have a really exciting announcement, which is Plant Yourself, after 11 years, finally has some merchandise, has some merch. And I'm delighted to announce that it was designed by my daughter, Yael Zivan, and is for sale on her Etsy store. So I would love it for folks to help support her and support the art she does. She's a, she's a full-time artist, and as some of you may know, that's not the easiest profession to be in these days. So if you check it out and you feel moved to get some merch um, for yourself or gifts for others, that would also help you know promote the show and would help her a great deal. So here's where you can go. You can go to plantyourself.com slash merch. That's all lowercase, M-E-R-C-H, short for merchandise, plantyourself.com slash merch, and that will forward you right to her Etsy store. Thanks so much, and let's now get into extinction curves and cravings with the very good Dr. Glenn Livingston. So without further ado, Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome back to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Yo, 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 Howie. How are you? What's going on? Oh, lots, lots. I'm excited to be talking to you again. I'm excited. I'm always excited to talk to you. Cool. Well, so you have a new book. I do. Defeat Your Cravings. Defeat Your Cravings. And has it got a subtitle? I bet it has a subtitle. The Backdoor to Weight Loss. Uh, You're so good at subtitles. (laughs) I I give it some thought and it it, um, reflects the theme of what I'm trying to teach and what's what's new about, um, about the latest book. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I just, uh, did a, uh, scheduled Instagram live and it, it asked for like, you know, description and I'm like stuff we're going to talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like you give, you give this stuff a lot more thought than I do. Yeah. I, I could have just called it good stuff about food and eating and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So aside from the, the title, so you, you know, you've been on this podcast many times, and I think the first time we talked about your then new book, Never Binge Again, mm-hmm. and it's been, what, six, seven years? It's been nine years since, I, almost nine years since I published that first book. Holy nine, cow, nine we're years, old. A million readers, a million readers in psychology today, 2,000 clients, lots of, um, um, Yeah. A lot of stuff has happened. It's it's really changed my thought is the reason I'm talking about it. Not so much to brag, although I guess I'm bragging a little bit. Um, but it's really changed my thinking, especially the experience with clients over all those years. And um, I realized that I didn't have the whole story back then. I, I had enough for me to recover originally. Um, mm. you, want me to, you want me to talk about this or you want to go something different? Yeah, right. no, no. Let's yeah. let's talk. Because, I mean... First of all, it's, 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 it's unusual for people who have a social media presence and an online presence to be able to say, the stuff I was doing then was incomplete. So, you know, I, I, I so want to appreciate, you know, first of all, your, your humility, your curiosity, your willingness to really look into it. Because, you know, 
I've worked with people where the people that I were helped proved that I was great, and the people that I didn't help, it was their fault. But like oh. you're saying, I'm I'm looking at the whole picture and seeing where I still. I'm falling short and what I need to build on. So let's, let's talk about you, that. You know, but both of my parents were psychologists. And so I'm was constantly being asking, but what's your, what's your side of the story? What can you take responsibility for? So I, yeah. I'm, I'm constantly have a growth mindset and trying to figure out what I got wrong. Um, actually don't spend enough time thinking about what I got right, but yeah, so, <laughs> so, I mean, just to summarize the last book, the, the first book, um, I was a fat guy. I'm a not so fat guy now. Um, I had a big problem with food, and I solved it eventually after years and years of looking at, you know, did my mama drop me in my head, and did her mama drop her in her head, and what was the hole in my heart, and if I could fill that, would I stop filling the hole in my stomach? After decades of trying to do it that way, and getting a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter, um, I eventually discovered that I had to take more of an alpha wolf approach to my own mind. And the way I describe it now is I set up a tripwire in my head. It turns out that the reptilian brain doesn't know love. It knows eat, mate, or kill. And it knows feast or famine, fight or flee. And that's the part of the brain that's responsible for food addiction. That's the part of the brain that's responsible for just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. It pushes your rational brain aside. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what I know now that I did is I intervened in those um, behavioral automation loops, the tendency of the brain to want to automate the acquisition of calories, which is a very dangerous tendency in today's modern food environment where we have all these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and excitotoxins. And um, I know now that what I did, which back then was very colloquial and a little crass, I said, um, I'm going to make clear lines in the sand. Uh, like I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I heard a voice in my head saying that, you know, go ahead, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You can just start your silly rule again tomorrow. I, I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. That pig is squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I wasn't going to teach this stuff. I, I was, um, this is just a private thing, right? Um, what that did is it set up a tripwire so I knew when my rational thinking was getting pushed out of the way. I had a very, very clear line, and anytime I had a thought that suggested I break it, I would say, okay, I have to do something now because this reptilian brain is getting active. Um, what I did in the way that I recovered, and this is what I wrote about in the first book, was very cognitive. It was um, to, to say, okay, wait a minute, why does my pig want me to break the line? Well, because it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Why is that wrong? Well, because um, the principle of neuroplasticity says if you have a craving and a thought today and you reinforce that, so if I have chocolate on a Wednesday at Starbucks um, and I had that rule that said I wouldn't, then I've reinforced both the craving and the thought and I'll be more likely to say start tomorrow, tomorrow. You can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. If you're in a hole, you've got to stop digging, Right. That would be an example of a cognitive refutation or eliminating your best excuses for breaking your own rules. Um, did a lot of experimentation, changed the rules around, figured out how to get thin. That took me several years. Um, I kept the journal. The journal became the book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
So I, let's call that fixing your thinking about food, just for just to make it easy. Let's just call that fixing your thinking about food. Over the course of the years that I worked with all the clients, and I, you know, I had a group program. About two thousand people came through. We had group and individual coaching. I had coaches that worked for me, so I didn't do all two thousand myself, but I talked to all two thousand people more or less in the groups, and. Um, I, I had a partner. We, we got very, very good. The whole team got very good at fixing, fixing people's thinking quickly. Had a very big impact. Over the course of one month, we measured our results, and we found people would report about an 89.4% reduction in overeating. The people who engage. Some people pay for programs that don't do anything, and you know we couldn't do anything about that. Um, but the people that engaged, they got an 89.4% reduction in a month. So. Essentially, for eight years, I worked on compressing the timeline to fix your thinking and remove your best excuses. Um, however, when I would follow up at around the six-month mark, the data would drop to about 54, 55%. Um, mostly, it was um, bimodal. There were the people who kept doing the stuff that we suggested, and they were doing pretty well. And there were people who kind of let it go, and they were doing awful. And I said, well, why are people letting it go? What, what's going on? Investigated that. And that's when I found a kind of miracle, um, which doesn't really sound like a miracle, but it, it's like a big slap yourself on the head with a spatula, you know, oh, duh moment. Um, eventually, people would get to the point where they fixed all their thinking about food. There was nothing else their pig could say to fool them into making it okay to eat except for this one little thing, which was, screw it, just do it. Yeah, we don't have any good reasons. Yeah, it's probably a really bad thing to do. But oh, what the hell, let's do it anyway. <laughs> and, um, and just about everybody would get to that point at some point. And what, what they do with that really made all the difference in the world to whether they kept going or not. Um, and so I started reflecting on you know, I had some of those moments also during my period of recovery. And I started to kind of clue into those moments would occur if I hadn't really neutrified myself well for a period of time, like if I was skipping meals or um, if I had eaten some not so nutritious stuff, some like high glycemic, you know, if I had some flour, I, my rules didn't always eliminate that. Um, if I had had some flour, if I'd had some, um, if I had too much coffee, um, if I hadn't had enough greens, if I hadn't had enough, um, you know, fruit or beans or, or something to really keep my body flooded with nutrition, then I, I started to recognize that it was much easier to say, screw it, just do it. Um, I realized also that if I hadn't had enough sleep, if I hadn't had enough water, if there were not enough people around me. Um, all of these things, which I, I understand now, have to do with what I'd call organismic distress. That, you know, our best thinking only goes so far if you, if you allow the body to reach a state of organismic distress because we have this survival mechanism that says... If things are tough, you need more calories. You need more resources. The brain freaks out mm -hmm. and it says, okay, enough with your stupid rational thinking. 
you know, go give me the chocolate, get me as many calories as possible, as soon as possible, consume mass quantities, right? Um, and depending how far down that rabbit hole you go, the, the brain doesn't ever give up a calorie acquisition learning. It never erases it. It can only label it dormant. We can talk about that also. Um, and I was, then I started checking all that out with my clients and I realized that it really was true that, that, um, self-regulation has to be part of the game. It's fixing your thinking is magic, but it's not, it's uh, necessary, but not sufficient for really overcoming overeating permanently. That, then I realized. So can I, can I j- jump in here for a second? Of course. Um, like one thing that I find it interesting is that you didn't then try to NBA the screw it, just don't screw it, just do it rule that you didn't then like double down on. Well, it's just another thought. I, I did. I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I initially did try to do that. Um, uh, because the second half of the screw it just, um, if you really loose, if you really elicit what the whole squeal is, it's screw it, just do it. We don't care. Right. Mm. And the, ref- the, the cognitive refutation for that is I don't care that you don't care pig because I care very much. Mm. So there is a cognitive separation from that thought that can help. And that, that did stop it for some people, mm. not in all circumstances. Um, the best way I could describe this would be there are some rules you can't follow if your body needs more. Like I could not make a rule that says I will never pee again because my bladder will speak up in 12 hours and or, or sooner and make sure that I do. Um, and this screw it, just do it response is very similar. Like people are trying to hold on for dear life and grip to these rules, um, but they're not necessarily attending to taking breaks and having social contact and, um, you know, sleeping and, and connecting and drinking water and all the things mm. we need to do to be human beings on this, on this planet. Gotcha. And it's interesting that the, the fixing your thinking is still a helpful part of it. Cause I was just having a conversation with a group that I'm in where we're, the, the modality is to, to really look at, distressing thoughts, experiences, so that you can reconceptualize them and change your, your relationship to them. And I was asking about, you know, things like um, just sort of cognitive diffusion, like cognitive techniques. And one of the points was that if you can see it as a part of yourself, as opposed to all of you, or you can see it as, you know, a passenger on the bus shouting, that just that separation can reduce the distress to the point where it's easier to go in and do the harder stuff. Yes. When you, um, in my original training, we called that your observing ego. If you can Mm -hmm. separate from your experiencing ego and get into your observing ego, um, then you've, you've fought half the battle to get back into your, into your upper mind. Um, so I very much believe in the power of cognitive refutation and, and you know, using your head to direct your most important eating decisions. But I also yeah. recognize that our brains are fueled by our bodies and um, there are limitations to what our bodies can do uh, using, using logic and reason. Excellent. Okay, so there, there we were... Um, with this idea of organismic distress, 
ultimately overriding just about any cognitive resolve that you had. Mm -hmm. So then what, where do you go from there? So we, we started to add little techniques that would reduce organismic distress. Um, nutrition is the most important one. It's also the hardest thing to get people to change. Um, you know, I, we, we would look at our results for people who were doing one meal a day or trying to intermittent fast their way out of binging. And we found it was about half of that when people would eat regularly. And so, um, but, but it was very, very difficult when people come in, you know, they would say, well, teach me how not to binge. And then I won't have to worry about all this other stuff. But show me how to use these rules to, you know, live on the eating schedule that I really want to. But, but it's very hard to convince them to have a regular, reliable eating schedule. Um, so we looked at other things. Like, for example, your breath is always with you. And so instead of just jumping right to the cognitive refutation when you hear your pig saying something, if you were to um, do some parasympathetic breathing, what that means is that there's a type of breathing which puts you into the part of your nervous system that knows that it's okay to rest and digest and think and strategize about your long-term goals. Mostly it has to do with breathing out for longer than you breathe in. My friend Lori Hammond calls it a 7-11 breath. So if you breathe in for a count of 7 and out for a count of 11, I'm not doing it now because it takes a while. Um, the moment that you hear that before you do a cognitive refutation, you, um, you calm yourself. You take yourself from more of a state of um, urgent doing, which is what the binging state is, to a state of relaxed being. I first discovered this, I'd had a, 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 well, I guess it wasn't a bad date, but it was a date um, with a woman who, when she found out what I was doing for a living, she said, oh, well, I used to binge eat all the time at night until I started doing 20 minutes of yoga before bed. And I said, really, what's going on there? And I started talking to her about it. I talked to my yoga teachers about it. And... I discovered it had to do with the breathing. Like there's a particular way that yoga teaches you to deal with discomfort that shows you that discomfort is temporary, that you can, you know, surf the urge to eliminate it um, by focusing on your breathing and getting yourself into that more relaxed, um, you know, state of being rather than urgent doing. So that made a difference when I could get people to breathe when they had the, um, when they had the urge. It turned out that getting people to carry a pen and paper and write down what their pig was saying was also a parasympathetic activity. It wasn't a purely cognitive activity because it required that they get out of that urgent doing state. And, and, you know, writing is more of something you do when it's writing is not something you do when a hungry bear is chasing you. Writing is something that you do when, you know, you have the time to, to breathe and relax and, and think about it. Um, and then there were other things like, um, and I talked about this a little bit. I wasn't really onto how it fit into the whole picture. But in the first book, we talked about um, willpower being the ability to make good decisions. And there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of a day. Yeah. There are studies that show that people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems beforehand because you're taxing their decision. I don't know what 
professors make up these sadistic experiments. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I don't. But, I don't know who. I don't know what professors think that marshmallows are a treat either. Right. I know. Right. Um, but people eat more marshmallows after you make them do math problems because it taxes their decision making ability. Right. Well, I remember um, a study about uh, you know raw radishes and hot chocolate chip cookies. Mm-hmm. Right, where where and then I think they have to plunge their hands into ice water or something. And the group that was told eat eat as many radishes as you want and pay no attention to the chocolate chip cookies in right. the oven were were much less uh, able to maintain the the perceived pain of of ice water. That makes sense. Those studies also showed, by the way, I don't know if it's the exact same researchers, but those studies also showed that people can keep their hands in ice water for I think forty two percent longer if they curse while they're doing it and saying fudge doesn't, doesn't cut it. You've got to use the real word. <laughs> um, I, and so one interesting technique I have people do is wh- when they hear the pig and they feel like they just can't re- resist, they tell it to STFU, they go FDFFFF. Um, and it actually makes a difference. So ju- just don't wear your Wait, feature. Wait, I don't know if you're allowed to curse on your podcast or not. I am. Oh. So, I, I, yeah. Oh. Well, so, so if, if you scream fuck when, yeah. when you have a really bad craving, then it buys you a little more time to get back into your right mind. So that, that's, it actually is a technique. It actually does work. Um, just don't wear your defeat your cravings t-shirt while you're, while you're doing that in public. Um, <laughs> and don't do it at the grocery store while you're, you know, standing in front of the ice cream or something. Um, so just to get back to the point about decision-making, when I could get people to take even two five-minute breaks every day, um, put down your phone, walk away from the computer, don't let anybody bother you, go hide in the bathroom if you have to, if you've got six kids and they won't leave you alone, um, two five-minute breaks a day can make, can make a big difference. Um, so th- things like that. Things like that were... And, and then also... You know, the, the brain needs a certain amount of dopamine release. Um, you know, dopamine is the motivational and pleasure hormone. And 100,000 years ago, if we didn't have it, we would have sat around looking at the sunset or, you know, at the woman next to us rather than going to, you know, go, go and gather berries or, you know, go chase monkeys and find banana trees. Um, and we could have starved. So it's an evolutionary advantage to have pleasure. It's actually an evolutionary advantage. And there's this, there's a level of distress that occurs when we don't get it. And most people, when they try to overcome their cravings, they don't focus on the alternative ways that they're going to find that dopamine. Um, so it's actually helpful to make a list of your favorite movies, um, you know, kind of like Blazing Saddles and The Man with Two Brains and comedy shows and things that you could relax with a little bit. Uh, Gather a group of pictures that remind you of nice memories and make you happy. Um, Think about some other things which give you, you know, hits of pleasure, uh, which might take a little more time, like getting outside or getting a little bit of sunshine on your face or, you know... giving yourself some authentic recognition for the fact that pleasure is an essential human need um, and having lists of those things to go to beforehand so that when the urge hits, you can, you can turn to them 
that that mm-hmm. makes a difference. Um, it, it all it all kind of centers around this you know, self regulation and self care. Um, and when you combine that with the unusual techniques for fixing your thinking, um, you have a really really powerful combination. I call it the back door to weight loss because the thing that we also discovered was that most overeaters are in a panic cycle. They, um, they're, I think it's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Do you know the poet? He, he, he wrote a poem. You know, there once was this little girl, and when she was good, she was very, very good, but when she was bad, she was horrid. That's uh-huh. how most people are with food. When they're good, they're very, very good, but when they're bad, they're horrid. So they, they overeat and overeat and overeat, and then they try to get rid of all those calories as quickly as possible and lose the weight as fast as they can. So then they fast, or they go on a crash diet, or they go on a serious diet. And it turns out that that, is, that in and of itself stimulates the state of emergency that makes your brain want to you know, hoard calories. Like if, and if you think about it, if we lived in an environment where caloric resources were scarce, then as soon as we're, the brain knew that it was available, it would make us have as many as we possibly could. Um, so, so I tell people they really need to make weight loss like a second or third priority. The most important pri- priority is getting on an even keel, um, learning to control your most important food decisions with your head versus your whims and impulses, and settling in for the journey, um, letting weight loss occur. And, and it almost always does if, if people do this. Letting it, let it occur a half a pound, a pound a week. Um, unless your doctor says there's an emergency, we try to get people off of that, you know, lose 30 pounds in 30 days or, you know, urgent need to get ready for the wedding or something like that because it, um, it only fuels the cycle. It only fuels the organismic distress cycle and it almost never works. Yeah. And just, you know, to, I I was, you know, reading some brain science recently and the, the authors made a point that was so obvious that I'd never thought about before, which is your brain doesn't know shit about what's happening in the world by itself. Like it's, (laughs) it's locked in a box. Hmm. You know, there's no light. There's no, like it has to rely on senses for everything to try mm-hmm. to figure out the world, to try to make sense of what's going on. And so it's natural that it, does, it, it wouldn't necessarily have any way of telling the difference between a real food emergency, like there's a famine outside and there's not enough food, or <laughs> you going on a restrictive diet for two weeks. Like for, to the brain, that's the same thing, right? It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And your brain thinks that binging is keeping you alive. That's why it's so difficult to think rationally when you get to that point. It, your brain thinks that you're going to die if you don't binge. This is how you've taught it that it stays alive. And so you have to be able to use every bone in your body to intervene in that impulse and start to you know, pry apart that moment where the brain just wants to automatically do that. The, there are a couple of other techniques that we use. Can I, can I talk mm-hmm. about that or... Um, can, can, I, can I frame it? Frame it, well, it might be framed this way already, but I have in my notes, I wanted to make sure you talked about the extinction burst and the extinction curve. Mm-hmm. Are those, is that related to what you want to share now? It will be in a moment. I, I, okay, I like, so, you, I so you, you go ahead. 
You can remind me right after we finish this because I know that I go off in tangents sometimes. Um, so right. I, I go off on cosines. So, <laughs> so uh, oh, oh, arguably, it's worse. I want the last five seconds of my life back. That was really bad. <laughs> um, oh, I can't think. So, when, when you're sitting at the table with a big hot steaming plate of food in front of you, the last right. thing you want to do is pause. Your brain wants the calories, right? Uh-huh. However, there's a muscle um, which you can develop. It's a mental muscle you can develop to teach yourself to pause, which will help you at the other times in your life when the last thing you want to do is pause. Yes. Um, you know, at the times that you really want to break your rules and go have the chocolate bar, you can practice for that beforehand by every time you eat starting to develop a pause muscle. In the beginning, that can be as easy as going one, two, three. Right? Hmm. You're ready to eat. You want to dig in. This feels unnatural. You're going to be annoyed with me. Um, but what if you did it anyway and developed that ability? One, two, three. You're prying apart that space between stimulus and response. That, that's the muscle that you need. Once you start to get a little more space, then you can do other things before you eat. You could take a 7-Eleven breath so that you're more likely to be eating in a parasympathetic state than in a panicked, you know, calorie acquisition state. Um, when it gets big enough, when it gets even bigger, you can remind yourself of the worst things that your pig says to try and fool you. Come on, one bite won't hurt. And then you remind yourself of the refutation for that, which is one bite is a tragedy. It's the difference between who's in charge, me or you, Mr. Pig. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can use that time to reinforce the thoughts that you want to have as opposed to the thoughts that make you overeat. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really interesting is that the thoughts that you have right before you eat are more likely to recur. There's a principle in psychology called operant conditioning, um, where the thoughts are actually reinforced by the food that you have, because your brain is always trying to figure out, how do we get calories? How do we get calories? How do I get calories? And so if it thinks, well, all I have to do is think of this stuff, and then I get calories, you'll find yourself, if you do this, reflexively thinking those thoughts at, at the moment of impulse when you're you know, out on the road or in at a 7-Eleven and there's a bag of potato chips, uh, you'll, you'll say one bite does hurt, one bite's a tragedy. It's the difference between who's in charge. Um, so your okay. own thoughts become Pavlov's bell. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, that's more classical conditioning, but this is something, this is more like Skinner's operant conditioning. Uh-huh. But yes, essentially that's true. Essentially that's true. Um, so, so... I guess that's enough techniques for now that can actually help you find that space. The other thing that's well, let me, ahead, wait, yeah, let me, yeah, another question about that. So when you when you first said you know the to pause when the last thing you want to do is pause, I thought about meditation practice, mm-hmm. like just sitting and like I, I promise you, if I sit down with the intent to meditate for twenty minutes, my nose will itch at second nine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are days when I can just sort of watch it. And there are days where like, you know, after 10 minutes, I'm like, 
fuck it, I got to scratch this thing. Yeah. Then I can go back to meditating. Yeah. Um, are are there? I, I hear the power of doing it in the moment, like in, in when you're in the fire. Is there value in try, in doing in practicing it just more generalized in life? Oh, oh sure, oh sure. And, and meditation produces dopamine also. Um, so there are, there's a multitude of benefits. I've never been someone who can sit still and meditate. I I go to yoga just about every day. I walk on the beach. Um, I used to hike all the time. I, people would say, well, that means you should meditate. And I would be like, fuck you, I'm not meditating. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd be like, you really need to meditate. That's your response. I've been told that the reason I developed the program in the first place, especially the first one, was because I had to rely harder on my thinking because I was depriving myself of those, you know, mm. of those moments of dopamine and pausing. Um, it, it's all true, but, you know, I found my way and now I'm adding those kind of things back. Mm -hmm. But there's tremendous value. If you like to meditate, if you're, or if you're willing to meditate, there's tremendous value in doing that. But it's enough to make a difference to just go one, two, three. It's a different way of life. It's a, it's a commitment to being in charge of your food rather than just being like a riderless horse, letting your body do what it will. Mm. Um, it's a but it, also, it also reminds me of just about every religious tradition that would have a, a, uh, a ritual for pausing before food and <laughs> reinforcing some you know, desired attitude from the group, whether it's you know, gratitude or, or belief in God or whatever. I, yes, I, religion has figured this out a long time ago. They figured out the importance of that sacred moment before you, before you eat. And you can add that if you're a religious person, you can add this onto whatever your religious ritual is. I'm not suggesting that you replace it. And I don't want to make defeat your cravings into a religion. You don't have to um, sacrifice virgins to me or, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, I, yeah. I, I, really don't, I don't mean for defeat your cravings to be a religion. I, I do think it's sacred, though. I think that um, the rules that you create are more than just rules. They become your center with food. When you're of sound mind and body and you try to figure out what your higher self thinks is best for you and very clearly paint that bullseye, um, I think that's a sacred bullseye. And I think it should be treated with, with reverence like that. And so it's not a coincidence that there are some overlaps between um, what we're doing and, and you know, what religions have figured out helps to reinforce their sacred traditions. But, but you can do this after, you can relegate this to second place after the um, religious ritual and it works just fine. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the pausing technique. And you know what I would tell you with that is don't go too heavy on it too quickly. Um, don't be in a rush to move from a short pause to a long pause. And don't, don't, when you get a longer pause, don't stuff that ritual with more thoughts than you can handle because it's much better to have something you will do every day that you don't resist versus something that becomes a pain. Um, if you do it every day, you will trigger an identity function. Your, your brain likes to automate your behaviors to save, save energy. And so it will say, well, I must be someone who pauses before I eat. So set, mm. set the bar low, 
work your way yeah. up slowly. And um, yeah, that, that makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah. Well, B.J. Fogg uses the metaphor of, you know, you plant a seed. If you plant a seed in the right place where it gets the nutrients it needs, it's going to grow. It's much yeah. easier to plant a seed than to plant a tree. Oh, that's a really good analogy. I, I like B.J. Fogg. T- tiny habits. I really like yeah. Um Okay. Should we talk about the extinction curve or do you want to ask another question? I want to talk about the extinction curve. <laughs> okay. Wait, should I, should I count to three before that? You should. You ready, I Harry? Should. One. One, two, two three. Please, Glenn, please. <laughs> so, um, something else that came from the years of looking at the, the science of overeating and overcoming overeating was that People think that their cravings should go down in a straight line if they stop reinforcing them. So if I am um, if I am eating pizza every day on my way home from work when I pass a particular pizza place, and I make a rule that says I will never eat pizza from that pizza place again, you would think that on day one I'd have the hardest time and then it would go down um, in a straight line like that. But that's not how it works. And as a consequence, people get very confused and discouraged. What actually happens is you have a honeymoon period, so it goes down pretty quickly at first. And then somewhere around the you know four to seven exposures, an exposure is passing the pizza place and not having the pizza, your brain does what's known as an extinction burst. I like to call it the where the F is my pizza response and you have a worse craving than you've ever had before. At that point, most people will say, well, this torture is going to last forever. This is too hard. I can't make it. And they will then reinforce the craving at random by stopping at the pizza place and saying, forget it. I can't do it. That's the worst thing you can do. Here's what's going on with the extinction burst and why it's so important to power through and to prepare beforehand to power through. Um, Imagine it's 100,000 years ago, and we have a caveman named Thag, T-H-A-G. And I, I just like that name. I don't know why. Thag finds a monkey and follows that monkey to a banana tree, gorges himself on bananas, takes them back for his family because food was pretty scarce back then. And Thag is very happy. Now when he sees monkeys, he starts to salivate, and he has this motivation and happiness. He gets flooded with dopamine and gets really eager to go and follow them up to the next trip. He does this every day for a while, keeps finding bananas. Eventually, the area starts to get scarce of bananas, and he follows a monkey to a tree that has no bananas. Most people think that Thag's brain would give up at that point. But what actually happens is it doubles down on the dopamine response. And it, and it also doubles down on making him miserable if he doesn't keep on um, searching for monkeys to follow the banana trees. The reason for that is that in a scarce food environment, it's better to have a monkey that leads you to a banana tree 80% of the time or 50% of the time or even 20% of the time than having no monkeys at all. You're going to find more calories if you have a food signal that's not 100% reliable than if you have no food signal. I'll call the monkey the food signal. Um, so... The, the brain doubles down on that response test 
whether the reward has become intermittently available. Um, it does not want to give up what it learned was a calorie acquisition source. Mm-hmm. If and so, you, and so this is this is basically a like a global brain response about being very conservative about chucking out old learnings. Yep. Right. Just exactly. the same thing we ex- we experienced when we were uh, online marketers, and we cautioned people like don't don't run split tests every day and throw out the results. Like, right? That that the brain has has learned something, and it spent a lot of energy learning it and locking it in, and it's very hard to get the brain to unlearn it. And yeah. that's by design. That's not a flaw. No. Right? I mean, Other, th- otherwise. Yeah, go ahead. Thank, thank, God, thank God it does because we were more likely to survive like that. It's, um, sorry, we say healthy, um, strong cravings are not a sign of a sick mind. It's a sign of a healthy mind. And the mm-hmm. same process which forms the cravings also unforms the cravings. So you can't, if you can have cravings, your brain is not broken. Uh, you're, you're just experiencing primitive learnings in a very difficult, unhealthy modern environment. Um, so let's go back to Thag for a second. Uh, in this example, the monkey is the food signal and the bananas are the food. In my example, the pizza place is the food signal and the pizza is the food. Um, if, I, if I know this is going to happen and I don't randomly reinforce the craving, then it's going to start going down and the brain will gradually start extinguishing it. It will try a couple of more times, but not nearly as strongly. Just before it gives up, somewhere around the 30-day mark, um, 30 exposure mark, when you've actually passed the pizza place and don't have the pizza, you'll have a couple of little bursts, and then the craving is not dead, but it's dormant. So your brain has not given up the learning. It just said, I'm not going to bother this guy anymore with it because it's not producing results. It's more efficient for me to let it go than to keep bothering with him. Um, the other thing people do along that curve is that when they get down to where it's almost nothing, they say, I got this. I can handle a little bit. That, that doesn't work. That resets mm. the curve and you've got to go through the whole thing again. What does work, if you don't want to give up pizza entirely, would be to say, I'll only ever have pizza on Saturdays after my workout and only four slices, right? Be very, very specific about the signals which make the pizza available because your brain will then extinguish all the other signals. An everyday example would be um, the casinos. If you go to the casinos, you see all those women and men uh, hanging out at the, the little old ladies hanging out at the slot machines, pulling it compulsively because you got to be there because you don't know when it's going to pay off. That's yeah. what happens when you randomly reinforce a, a food signal. If you could imagine a casino where it only paid off at 10 a.m. on Saturday mornings, you would find those casinos empty all week long. Because mm-hmm. people would figure out, no, you got to be there on Saturday morning, but that's about it. You, you can do that with food also. So you'll find yourself getting cravings on Saturday morning after your workout, but you'll be able to pass the pizza place without a problem. Uh, most people, most people can do that. If they're very, very strongly addicted, then they might have to give it up. There are a couple of other implications of this. <sighs> the craving is specific to a food signal because your brain is trying to learn what makes it possible to go find calories. And so let's say I go through the 30 days successfully and I'm hardly feeling bothered as I'm passing the pizza place. But then suddenly I go back to visit my mom 
And we usually have pizza at her place with her friends over when I see her. And I haven't seen her for a month and a half or so. And I go back to visit her. And I have this unbelievably strong craving. I think, again, I failed. I failed. This is too hard. I can't do this. The craving is going to last forever. But I didn't fail. I succeeded at extinguishing the pizza place as a food craving. I had not anticipated that there were other uh, as a food signal, I had not anticipated that there were other food signals that I had to extinguish as well. So um, you need to understand the way the extinction curve works and the way that cravings attach themselves to particular food signals. And then you need to brainstorm all the different places where you have experienced that craving in the past and figure out how you want to deal with those particular signals. Uh, and that's, that's the way that you power through an extinction curve. When you decide to do this, because you know you're going to have those bursts, you also want to plan out some extra self-regulation as you're going through this difficult time. Don't go into battle wearing a plastic helmet. Go into battle, you know, with a full metal, full metal jacket and make sure that you're ready to, to face those cravings. So, you know, can you arrange a little more time off for yourself during this period? Can you, um, are you going to make yourself some other pleasurable foods that you know you can have? Are you going to be able to get a little more sleep, a little more social contact? What, how are you going to work this out to support yourself so you can power through the extinction curve? So, yeah, that, that's, that's how the science of extinction has really influenced my thinking uh, as compared to what I originally was telling people. This is, this is great. And it's, it's so um, – it changes the paradigm so much to think of the – the craving as connected to the signal rather than the food itself, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think it's if, if the craving is for pizza, mm-hmm. then you don't have the same. You don't you don't have precise tools. This is the world is this you know place where pizza could mug you at any moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas when when it's connected to the signal, it kind of reminds me of you know I'm learning Spanish now, and it's it's really driving me crazy that there's all these verbs that like I like. Me gusta. I'm interested in. Me interesa. Um, I I value or it's important to me is you know me importa. But the verb is not f- for me. The verb is for the thing. Like me gusta. Yes. Yes. Cafe is the coffee pleases me. Yes. And just yes, that yes. right. Just that the verb is related to the to the other thing. Like you know I go, you go, that he goes that. Like I'm trained to think of the verb as related to the subject, but in this in this configuration, I'm not even the subject. I'm the indirect object of the yes. thing pleasing or mattering or yes, or exactly. interesting. Exactly. And just just this this shift of like it's the signal rather than the food itself. Because when we think like the brain, the way I understand the brain is it's basically its basic function is as a prediction engine. Right, going through life making predictions, uh-huh. and so the so it's focused specifically on if this then that, and so if we're just always looking at the that, then we we're helpless to the this. That's a really good point. Um, the smell of a food could be a signal, also. A feeling internally could be a signal, um, but you can make a list of the things that you're experiencing as food signals and plan out interventions for all of them. Mm. I think it's important to recognize that our culture has adopted 
inappropriate language about food problems. It's very common for people to use passive language and say, you know, the smell of the bakery triggered me or the pizza place triggered me. What, what actually happened was the smell of the bakery reminded you of a previous positive experience with acquiring calories and you chose to reverse your previous best intents and, you know, indulge in that, that experience. You have to reinsert yourself back into the mix. Otherwise, <coughs> there's no space between stimulus and response and you're just part of this automatic loop. And mm. that the reason this language has become so popular is that it alleviates the sense of guilt, sense of guilt and responsibility, but it does that at a tremendous price. And that, that price is you. You know, your, yeah, your, the price is responsibility. <laughs> the price is responsibility, the, right? Yeah. I, well, I've been wondering about that with, you know, just learning a second language, like wondering if there are different ways that people think about it. Because Spanish, to me, is, it seems very agency lacking in terms of, you know, I like pizza. Pizza pleases me. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm, I'm the object of, of pizza. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about that. I, I had trouble with that in Spanish also. So. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That could be, um, I wonder if there's a higher incidence of food addiction in countries that um, speak Spanish or use passive language like that. I wonder. Yeah, it's I, like, I yeah, I'm speculating. Ling linguistics versus capitalism. See which, <laughs> which fucks us over worse. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that's the primary differences between the books. There's more of an emphasis on the science of cravings. Oh, I'll tell you something else that I've learned about cravings. That's really important. Yeah. May I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one very pleasurable experience can be enough to form a new habit that would last forever. Um, and so there are positives and negatives about it. The negative is you have to be alert for when you've experienced something extraordinarily pleasurable and ask yourself if you want this habit or not. Mm. I remember I had a friend who I used to go out to lunch with sometimes, and once in a while he'd order something new, and he'd taste it and he'd go, oh, no, I can't eat that. Glenn, I can't eat this. It's too good. And if it's too good, it's no good. If it's too mm. good... Because he didn't want to start, he didn't want to start stopping at the diner all the time to have that and have you know six sandwiches. And he he figured out that he had to be in the alert for things that were, you know, too good. And he really wanted to stop it right then. What he could have done is he could have made a very specific rule for when he would have it and how he would regulate it, just like we were talking about before. But I didn't know that back then, and neither did he. Um, but you can also use this to your advantage. What? What the brain is really responding to in those situations is unexpected new sources of pleasure because the brain is always on the alert for new sources of calorie acquisition. So when it has an unexpected new source of pleasure, it gives you a bigger hit of dopamine than when you have the same thing day after day. So the first time that Thag found the banana trees, the bananas would taste better than they ever will again um, because it was a new, a new source of pleasure. You can use this to um, stimulate the pleasure response with response to, with regards to the foods that you want to have in your diet. So, 
if you spend some time figuring out a dozen or two dozen recipes that you really like and you rotate them through. And so, you know, this month for me, I'm making a flourless vegan lasagna and I really uh -huh. enjoy it, but I'm not going to have it next month because by the end of the month, I know I'm going to get bored of it. I'm not going to feel the same level of pleasure next month. I'm probably going to make a cabbage salad. Um, you know, and after that, I'm going to make this really delicious cauliflower soup that I, that I learned how to make. Um, so if you, if you take the time, it would actually be better if I rotated it week by week. I'm just a little lazy like that. But if you take the time to develop a repertoire of a dozen, maybe two dozen recipes, and you rotate them through, then you'll constantly be getting pleasure because the brain will find them unexpected. Um, mm. But if you have them day in and day out, then the, the colloquial experience is getting bored of them. The scientific mm. term is downregulation. Your brain is saying this is not a this is not a new source of pleasure. Go find me new ones. Mm. Uh huh. There's a uh, one of my favorite singer songwriters, Greg Brown wrote a song called If I Had Known, and there's, there's three verses, and the basic idea is, so the first one is, he was a kid fishing in the creek, and all, everyone said there's no fish in there, and then he and his friend walked down the street with, you know, five-pound bass, and he's like, if, if I had known, I would have stopped fishing right then, because it was never going to be that good. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, and, 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 and the third, the third verse is about sex, and he says, "You know what? It just keeps getting better. It breaks the rule." <laughs> um, this is also true for the first bite versus the tenth bite of something delicious you have. When you make a new delicious meal, nothing is better than that first bite. Um, you can use that to your advantage. You can say, "Well, you know, maybe some people are not going to eat desserts or sugary desserts." Um, except for, you know, two bites when they're out with their spouse or something like that. And you could absolutely treasure that experience of those first couple of bites and then leave it alone after that. So I've seen people mm. make that work for them too. Yeah. Right. Although from there, that reminds me of, um, you know, Anna Lemke's Dopamine Nation book where she talks about like, you know, the first bite of a sugary treat makes you happy, but after that you're sadder than before you had it. So the, the reason you have the second bite is not because it's delicious, but because now you're, you're, you're slightly you're chasing, you're chasing the dragon. You're chasing the chasing dragon. The dragon. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I mostly don't do that myself anymore. Like the cleaner I eat, the more pleasure I get from clean foods. I like the phenomenon of getting more and more pleasure from clean foods. Um, so I, I mostly don't do that anymore. Once in a while I'll, I'll plant something out. Um, mm. But it's, it's absolutely true. You're, having the second bite to relieve the misery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I remember years and years ago, I was out with a friend, we were at an Italian restaurant, and I just kept eating, it was like gnocchi or something. And he's like, you know, aren't you full? Don't you want to take that home? And I had to stop and think and go, you know, like, not only is it less pleasurable, but I've reached the, I've reached the point where it's becoming painful now. Like, this would be, this would be so amazing tomorrow, like heated up for lunch, and it's, like just making me miserable now and I'm still eating. Like, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Well, well, but, I, but I mean, it's not when you consider the primitive food environment where, you know, if you found a source of calories like that, you better get as many as you could. Cause you don't know when the getting is going to be good again. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I have, I had one more question in my notes, which I think I mentioned I was threatening to ask you and, uh, okay. so we'll see if you, you have an answer for, which is, We've talked about like the two main things. One is the um, 
organismic distress and how to deal with that, and then the extinction burst and the extinction curve. And I want—I was curious about the intersection of the two. Is like how does you know oh, okay. if you're trying to if you're trying to deal with an extinction curve, how do, how does organismic distress play into it, and vice versa? So you could think about taking on an extinction curve, like going to do a really good workout. Suppose you're going to CrossFit and you are going to try to squat for a personal record or something like that. Um, if you really want to make that happen, you want to get through that workout, you're going to have to prepare for it. You're going to have to eat the right way the day before. You're going to have to get enough sleep. You're going to have to drink enough water. You're going to have to you know, kind of clear your mind and be able to focus on the form. You're going to have to... Um, maybe get some tips about the forum and, and how are you going to work your way up to it. Um, and so in that, in this metaphor, I always get confused about the difference between a metaphor and an analogy because my mother was an English teacher and I was very rebellious. Is this a metaphor? This is a metaphor, right? In, in that metaphor or analogy. Um, simile? The, okay. Is it a simile? No, I don't think so. I just... We, we, have, we have to ask Mia. Um, Whatever. <laughs> I think it's in this example. These words the, that represent other words. These are like two very educated PhDs having a ridiculous time figuring this out. Um, the organismic distress and relieving your organismic distress would be the preparation. And so you're, deci you're deciding to go do this really big workout. And going through an extinction burst is an effort. It's a really big workout. You don't just show up and squat, you know, 300 pounds. You mm -hmm. really have to prepare for it. And you're going to relieve as much organismic distress before you go into that workout as you can. And you're going to figure out how to take yourself all the way through it. You're going to figure out how to recover from the, you know, from the workouts. And every day of that 30 days is going to be a workout, some harder than others. So how can you step up your self-care and self-regulation so you experience as little organismic distress as possible during that extinction period? One other thing to consider about extinction periods, by the way, is that it's not technically 30 days, it's 30 exposures. So when you're having pizza every day, it corresponds to about a 30-day habit. And most people have the most trouble with their daily habits. Um, and when they extinguish their daily habits, they feel very empowered and able to work on some of the less frequent ones. But if you're having you know, pizza every weekend at your mom's house, it's going to take longer to extinguish that because it's going to take longer to get 30 exposures to your, mm. to your mom's house. And so for those types of things, you're going to, your extinction curve, you know, it could be five or six times longer, seven times longer. So you're going to need some extra tools to get through that. It could be, it could be setting up an email to yourself to occur the day before you go to the house. So these are the extra things I have to do before I go to my mom's house. I need to, you know, make sure I had some, you know, whole grains and beans and greens before I go so that my glycemic level is really, really regulated. I'm going to have to have enough water. Um, these are the things my pig is going to say. These are the refutations. You want to support yourself by, in every email system, there's a way to schedule an email to arrive when you want it to arrive. So work it out so that your thoughts from your higher self show up just at the mm. time that you need it. Um, yeah, and then, mm. then you're then you're good to go. Ah, so I got three questions about that. Um, so what, like, if an exposure 
could be daily, but like, could you speed it up by like walking around the block of the pizza place 30 times? Yes. Well, yes, to, to a certain extent, because the food stimulus is actually not just the pizza place. It's probably the pizza place after a long day of work when you're hungry and tired and haven't thought of, you know, what to make for dinner. Um, and so there's only a certain extent to which you can speed up um, that, that, that ex experience. Um, could you spend the whole day standing in front of the pizza place and then you're done? I, I don't think so. I've never really tried that. It's like Stephen Wright once said, you know, I took my dog out for a week and then I told him, you're done. We're not going out the rest of the year. <laughs> right. Yeah. I walked I, my I, dog to Florida. I, I, I think there's, I have to look this up. That's a good question. I don't, I don't have the actual answer of that, but I'm, I'm pretty uh -huh. sure it's more like farming than cramming, as Stephen Covey would say. I, I think you have to integrate it into the rhythm of your daily life um, so that you experience the results in your daily life. But I don't know that for gotcha. certain. I, I wonder what the limits are of yeah. flooding. That or how long, yeah, or how long it would, it would take to consider two, two exposures rather than one. I don't right. know. Is there, a is there a refractory period? I, I can tell you that it was helpful when I was giving up chocolate entirely, which I had to do eventually. It was helpful to me to specifically walk into the supermarket and stare at the chocolate when I wasn't hungry and I was, you know, well cared for. And I'd say to my pig, okay, give me your best excuse for, for having one today. Let's see what you got. Um, so when I took a real, you know, tough guy's approach, and said, I'm going to stare this thing down. I, I know that the extinction dropped a little quicker. So I think there's mm -hmm. something to it, but I also do think it's got to be a, a daily routine. Gotcha. Second question, if you're going to do the pizza with your mom every two weeks or so, is it helpful to have a, uh, to count the, ex the exposures, to have a chart and say, okay, this is exposure number five, this one's number seven? I, I haven't experimented with that. That's interesting. Um, what, what I found in practice is about 80% of the problem with any given food, like pizza, is usually connected to one or two daily signals. And when people extinguish that, they change their mindset and they feel really empowered to get through these infrequent experiences. Um, I don't know if it would be helpful to count them. It might be. I, okay. I know I know that for the weekly or monthly experiences that I've had, it takes about a year to really be totally free of them. Um, mm. But it doesn't scare me because I've got these supports in place and I'm so thrilled with having beaten the daily torture that it, it seems like a more like a mosquito than a, than a tiger. Hmm. I hate mosquitoes. Um, so last question. So let, let's say, you know, the, the mom pizza example, and you know that mom is pretty incorrigible about, oh, Glenn, you're so skinny. Let's get pizza. This is fun for us. Would you in this, in, in, if you want to beat the extinction curve, would you tell, tell her like, mom, I want you to stop. That's not supporting me anymore. And knowing that she's still going to do it sometimes, or would you want mom to bring it full on so that can be part of the food signal that you are extinguishing? Um, there's an understanding 
of social pressure that helps with that situation? I think the short answer is it depends upon your mom and why she's really doing it. Um, okay, in, in psychology, we talk about groups versus aggregates. This is going to be very relevant in a minute. Um, an aggregate is like a set of people in an elevator. Even before COVID, if you walked into an elevator and there were a bunch of people there, everybody automatically distances themselves as much as possible from each other. So you wind right. up with this equidistant you know, configuration in the elevator. Everybody stands forward and looks at the thing. We're not supposed to talk to each other. Sometimes when we get off at the, you know, the floor, I turn to everybody and I, and I go, this was great. We should do this again next year, right here, right at right this time. And they look at me like I'm a weirdo because there's no group there. A, a group yeah. is a um, socially bonded set of people with common norms for behavior and common goals and, and interests. It's not a tribe. It's just a bunch of people in an elevator. If that elevator were to get stuck between floors and three hours later, the repairman arrives, you would find that it's become a group. They've developed some mm -hmm. social norms. How often can you push the call button? If someone has to really go to the bathroom, there might be a song that they're singing to them to distract them. There are probably some people sitting on the floor next to each other. Um, yeah. maybe someone had a deck of cards and they're playing a game or something like that. They're telling jokes, they're singing songs. It's become a group. And that's actually a very satisfying social experience, even though it's a frustrating experience to be in the elevator. Then if I said, Hey, next year, let's do this again. Then all of a sudden it makes sense. Hmm. It turns out that the quality of groupness is ephemeral. It, it fades over time. So if you, go to see your mom for Thanksgiving and you haven't seen her for a while. When she's coming to offer you a piece of cake or say, Hey honey, you look so skinny. You know, you really need this. Um, it's more than just her wanting to see you eat. It's more than just her wanting to have the cake herself and feeling guilty. If you don't join her, that's what most people think. Um, this quality of groupness is what, forms the fabric of society, these you know, mm. small tribes and then lar larger tribes. And in primitive times, it was um, dangerous for the tribe to be too fragmented. And so we had all these rituals, breaking bread together, you know, sharing food, offering there might be only one type of food. So you didn't have the option of saying, well, I think I'll eat this today, or you know, I feel like having salmon today. It was more like, eat what we give you or we'll kill you because you're going to get sick and be a burden to the tribe and cause us danger. Um, so there, there's a very strong underlying desire to welcome people back and reestablish the group norms and behaviors as quickly as possible. And mm. breaking bread or offering food is one of those things. Now, I've found that the best way around that in most circumstances is what I would call the alternative love gift. Mom is actually trying to love you back into the group. But... Mm. And, and when you're saying, mom, the doctor says I shouldn't do that, or, you know, this isn't good for me, or could you please stop? You're rejecting that effort. And mm. there, there's a sense of organismic distress that occurs because she feels like the tribe is in danger. That, and that's why this is so difficult to do. What you want to do instead is find something else that she can give you. So, mom, you know what? I'm, I'm really cold and I didn't bring a sweater. Can I borrow one of Michael's sweaters? Or mm. do you have a cup of mint tea? I, I, I had a little too much for lunch today, and I um, my stomach's a little upset. 
if you can make me some of that great mint tea that you make sometimes, or if it even be information, I couldn't get a signal in the, in the car. I'm dying to know what the score of the game is. Could we just go turn on the TV? Mm-hmm. Something that she can give you to hook into the norms of what occurs in the tribe that doesn't really have to do with even the things that you don't want to have. And you'll find that you've kind of sidestepped that whole conversation. And 99% of the time it goes away. Um, sometimes there are people that are trying to sabotage you or have other motives and, um, mm. you know, you have to brainstorm a, a stronger intervention, but, um, the alternative love gift is the best thing we found for those situations. That's fantastic. I, I, that I had not thought about that. So groups versus aggregates. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like you've redeemed our inability to tell the difference between metaphors and analogies <laughs> by, by distinguishing between groups and aggregates. It's from my old social psychology studies in graduate school. Yeah, man, we got to talk more. You, 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 you've forgotten more than I ever knew. So uh, I, d- I doubt that that's true, but I, I've got a compulsively absorptive brain. I, I've got to, I've got to read and think and read and think and read and think. It's just what I do. Awesome. Well, and 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 you share it in ways that uh, that have helped Thanks, me Sam. immensely and and have helped millions of others. Thanks, Howie. I appreciate it. So. So we got to go. Um, what's, the, what's the book? What's the website? How do people find you? Um, you can get a free copy in electronic format, Kindle, Nook, PDF, at defeatyourcravings.com. If you're not familiar with my stuff, you'll also get a set of food plan templates. This is a diet agnostic program. You can do it. I mean, I'm, I'm a plant-based person just like Howie, but I work with people of all dietary persuasions. Um, as long as you're not trying to starve yourself or, you know, just have one meal a day or something like that. It's at uh, defeaturecravings.com. You get a set of that and you'll discover my podcast and some other interviews I've done with Howie and um, and all, all sorts of things like that. So defeaturecravings.com, click the big blue button, sign up for the reader bonus list, and it's all free. With, not everything I offer is free. We do have coaching programs. We have physical copies of the book and everything like that, but the... Um, there's an awful lot of materials that you'll get for free when you do that. And the podcast is free and you know, the forum is free. There's, there's a lot that you can get to without paying. Yeah. Yeah. And I know so many people who have paid you and I don't know a single person who's regretted it. Thank you. I like to think that's true. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bueno, thank you so much. This has been fun and informative as always. Thanks, man. I, I, as many times as you want, I have to have you back on mine. Uh, I'm always here. Love to. Love okay. To. All right. Take care. Say say okay. hi to the cat in the background and uh, yeah. have a fabulous and, and, day. And, and remember, everybody should remember that when you've got the urge, just scream fuck and you'll be okay. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it does help. It does help if, if you can, if, you, if you're alone. All right. That's my next T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, in, ca- in, uh, in case of emergency, scream fuck. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's a great, that's a great note to end on. Glenn, thank you so much. Okay. Sure. I'll, I'll see you soon. Try, try, try to be classy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye. And that's a wrap. Show notes, links at plantyourself.com slash 576. I want to say once again, please check out plantyourself.com slash merch, M-E-R-C-H, if you're interested in supporting the show and getting some nice stuff for yourself or as gifts and in helping to support the arts, and particularly one artist, my daughter, Yael Zivan. I think you'll love her stuff. There's also some stuff in that store that's not Plant Yourself related. There's a cool uh, women's bathing suit 
And another sticker, um, another design she's done on stickers that uh, I love. It's on my thermos. It's on uh, my computer. So uh, check it all out, plantyourself.com slash merch. So been doing some good workouts. Um, did a lot of boxing this morning. And it's amazing how much that loosens me up. It, turn, it turns out that boxing, if you're just training for boxing and you're not actually getting punched, is pretty low impact and pretty high um, you know, caloric burn. So it uh, feels like it's good for stamina, especially when I mix that with some boxing and then running sprints across the sand. So it feels like things are definitely um, on the on a good direction in terms of developing stamina and rebuilding uh, some musculature. So that's it for here. Um, look forward to talking with you again next week. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Ernie Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Ronnie, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 